Thank you, Ryan. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you here to take part in our worship service. As we have been announcing uh, this afternoon at 4.30, we're beginning part two of our uh, series of lessons on shepherding. And uh, I want to take this opportunity to encourage you to consider coming and being a part of that class. Uh, everybody is welcome to be in the class. Uh, people ask when we did the first series of lessons, uh, should women come to this class? And absolutely. Women need to know about church leadership too. Uh, so don't let that stop you. Uh, what if you don't see yourself as being eligible to be an elder? Don't let that stop you. We still need to be informed about leadership in the church, don't we? But particularly uh, for those of you men who can ever see any possibility uh, of becoming a shepherd, we would encourage you to come and be a part of these classes. 4.30 to uh, 5.45 uh, each Sunday evening uh, for February and March, with the exception of March 12th. And I uh, hope that you will consider coming and being uh, a part of that. And uh, some of you ladies, if you're sitting there and your husband is thinking, no, that's not for me, elbow him a little bit, would you? Uh, and just nudge him. Uh, you know, Paul said that if anyone desires uh, to be a, a bishop, an overseer, he desires a noble task. We need men who desire to serve God and serve the church in this way. And I hope that you're one of them. And whether you see yourself in that role at this time or not, perhaps at some point you will be. And I hope that you'll come and be a part of these, uh, these classes. Have you ever seen one of those cartoons? I'm sure you have. Uh, the guy carrying the sign that says the end is near. You know, and they usually have on a long robe and a, a rope around their waist and long shaggy hair and sandals, you know, and they're walking around carrying their sign and they're real, real gloomy looking. I saw one this week that uh, a guy was doing that. He was walking along and he had his sign that said the end is near and about 10 feet behind him was another guy with, just like him with another sign that said the end. Uh, so the, the end really was near, uh, nearer, nearer than he thought. What always amazes me is that all those, those cartoons, the guys are always so gloomy looking. You know, they're always so gloomy looking. And I, I suppose that's because that's how most people think about the end. That's how most of us think about the end of time, the end of this world, however you want to look at it. We think of it as a disaster. We think of it as the worst thing that could possibly happen. We think of it as something that we ought to pray would never take place, when in reality the Bible says otherwise. Peter did not think of the end of all things as a disaster. Peter thought the end of all things was a blessing just waiting to happen. And that's what he's writing about in 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11, the end of all things. You know, both the Bible and science teach us that the world is going to come to an end. That's not really a question. A lot of people want to act as though it never will, but it will at some point come to an end. Science tells us that our universe is in a constant state of decay. It is in a state of decomposition. It's one thing that argues against the Big Bang Theory. Things have not gotten better and better. They're getting worse and worse. It's in a state of deterioration. And that being the case, even if God did not intervene and bring it to an end, it would eventually just fizzle out. That's, that's what would happen to it. It's like an ice cube. You know, you just set it out there in the sun and eventually 
it's going to be gone. And that's, that's the way science describes our universe. But Scripture says the same thing. Scripture affirms that the world is going to come to an end. Just a few examples. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, and also verses 10 and 11, Peter says, but by the same word, he's talking about Noah and the ark, by the way, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud roar, and the heavenly, uh, excuse me, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, or some uh, manuscripts say will be burned up. Since all these things are to, thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Peter says it's going to come to an end. Just as surely as the flood happened, the world is going to come to an end. And what sort of people should you be in lives of holiness and godliness? 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 1, Paul says the day of the Lord will come like a thief, which is what Peter said. And he says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, some of you can relate to that better than some of us. But he says, just as surely as that happens, once that process begins, it ends, it finishes. And so both science and scripture tell us that the world is going to come to an end. But notice Peter says the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. What does that mean? Is he saying that the end was going to happen soon? And if that's what he was saying, why didn't it happen soon? Why has it been 2,000 years and it still hasn't happened? Well, the NIV reading is a little bit misleading here. It says the end of all things is near. And, and near is a spatial term, isn't it? When we read that, uh, the end of all things is near, that suggests to us that Peter is saying it's, it's near at hand. It's, near, it's going to take place really soon. But at hand does not necessarily mean near in the chronological sense or in the spatial sense. It doesn't necessarily mean soon. In the New Testament, this expression at hand means that uh, everything, all the events in God's plan all the plans that he has for the redemption of the world have already occurred, thus clearing the way for the final act. And the final act is the return of Jesus. But everything that needs to happen has already happened, and so the end is at hand. It could take place any time, in other words. Wayne Grudem, in his commentary on 1 Peter, says the great last act, the church age, had been continuing for about 30 years by the time Peter wrote, Thus, the curtain could fall at any time, ushering in the return of Christ and the end of the age. That's why the New Testament so often speaks of the time between Jesus' first coming into this world and his second coming to this world as the last days. We've been living in the last days for more than 2,000 years now. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, tells us that in, in many and various ways, God spoke in the old times, in the former times, to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. So once Jesus came the first time, the last days 
were set in motion. The last days were underway, and we are in the last days, and so the end of all things has always been at hand, and it still is. It could take place at any time. So if it was at hand in AD 60 to, or 65 when Peter wrote, somewhere in that span of time, then it's certainly so today. And if Peter had such a positive attitude about the end of all things, then we ought to have a positive attitude about the end of all things. I want you to notice Peter's statement. He says, the end of all things is at hand. And then what's the next word? Therefore. The end of all things is at hand, therefore. Knowing that the end of all things is at hand ought to make a difference in the way that we live. You notice he asked that question in 2 Peter chapter 3. Seeing that all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of lives ought we to live? What sort of people ought you to be in view of the end? Therefore, therefore what? Because the end is at hand, it should make a difference in the way that we live. And understand this, he's writing to Christians, and he's not saying this is the way you need to live so that you can be saved. He's writing to people who are saved. And he's saying, because you're saved people, as saved people, this is how you ought to live. And then in this text, in verses 7 through 11, he outlines four goals, four goals by which we ought to live in light of the end of all things. So here they are. Number one, he says, we should keep a cool head. We should keep a cool head. Now, if you're looking in your Bible for the words cool and head, They're not there. Verse 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Keep a cool head for the sake of your prayers. You know, knowing that the end is coming, prayer really ought to have a high priority for all of us, shouldn't it? It ought to be a high priority. Sometimes we have trouble getting ourselves motivated to pray. But we have every motivation to pray. The end of all things is is at hand is one of those. And that's true of our personal and our private prayers. It's true of our collective prayers. I think here Peter is thinking mostly about our, our collective prayers, about the prayers we pray when we come together as the church. And the reason I say that is if you look at verses 8 through 11, uh, he's speaking not so much about personal spirit, spirituality as, he about, as he's about church life. Do you notice the three one another's in verses 8, 9, and 10? One another, one another, one another. This is how you're to relate to one another. So when he talks about our prayers, I think he's talking about the collective prayers that we pray when we are together. The NIV says, be sane and sober for your prayers so that you may pray. So that you can avoid anything that would cloud your judgment and lead you to not pray. So that you can stay away from anything that would hinder your prayers. And that's certainly true. But I think what's more likely is that what Peter is saying, keep self-controlled and sober-minded so you'll know what to pray about. We'll know what to pray about. I want you to think about this with me for a minute. What should the church be praying about in light of the end? What should the church be praying about in light of the end? What should be uppermost in our minds when we pray, knowing that the end of all things is at hand? 
Well, mostly, I think we, we tend to pray about temporal things, don't we? We pray about the sick. Uh, we pray about ministries of the church. We pray uh, about uh, care and protection uh, and for blessings and on ourselves and on others and so forth. And, and those are all fine. They're all right and good. But I'm not sure that they are the highest priorities when you think about the end being at hand. I think the highest priorities in light of the end are what Jesus stated in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 when he said, First of all, that we pray for God's name to be held in honor. I don't know about you, but I look forward to the day when God's name is held in honor instead of the way it is dragged through the mud now. And I think we ought to all be praying that. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be held sacred. We need to be praying about that. We need to be praying about the kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to be praying about that. We need to be praying about that time when God's will reigns supreme and instead of sin and ungodliness reigning supreme. We need to be praying about forgiveness, seeking our own forgiveness as well as we, as we pray for our own forgiveness that we pray that we'll be forgiving of others because the end of all things is at hand. We need, to, we need to pray about avoiding temptation in this toxic world. Lead us not into temptation, Jesus said, but deliver us from evil, or as I think it ought to be read, the evil one. Oh, don't we need that? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Living in a toxic world and trying to live healthy Christian lives, what could be more important than to be delivered from temptation and to be delivered from the evil one. We ought to also be praying about the spread of the gospel, shouldn't we? We ought to also be praying for Jesus and his return. We just sang it in that song, didn't we? Lord, haste the day when the, day when the faith will be sight and the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. We ought to be praying about that. Paul did, 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 22, when he said, come Lord Jesus. He had prayed that. The church ought to be praying that. We need to keep self-controlled and sober-minded for our prayers so we know what to pray for. Not only so that we will pray, so we know what to pray for. Keep a cool head about us and know what's most important. But along with that, Peter says we also need to keep a warm heart. A cool head and a warm heart. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Notice he says, keep loving one another earnestly. He has already emphasized love at least three times in this letter. Look at chapter 1, verse 22. He said, love one another earnestly from the heart. Chapter 2 and verse 17, he said, love the brotherhood. Chapter 3 and verse 8, he said, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And now in chapter 4, for the fourth time, he tells us to keep loving one another. But notice he says, above all. Above all, he says, keep loving one another earnestly. Why above all? I think the reason is this. Remember that Peter is writing to Christians who were undergoing persecution. They lived in a toxic world too. 
And when we live in a toxic world, love is going to get stretched to the limits. And so we need to love one another above all. In fact, the Greek term for uh, earnestly here means at full stretch. Above all, keep loving one another at full stretch. All that you can. Continually stretching to love one another. Why do we need to love one another that way? He says, because uh, we do stretch each other's love. We do sometimes irk one another in numerous ways. Some of you are sitting there thinking, I don't ever irk anybody. Come see me. I've got a list. Uh, okay. We, we do. We rub each other the wrong way. We get under each other's skin. We, we uh, offend each other. We hurt each other. We need to love each other at full stretch. We need to stretch our love, not just to cover what we think is okay, but to cover what is needed. And notice Peter says, because love covers a multitude of sins. Covers a multitude of sins. He's not saying if I, if I love you, then that covers a multitude of my sins. That's not the point. But the point is, if I love you earnestly, if I love you at full stretch, I'm going to be willing to overlook a lot of stuff. And that's what we really need, isn't it? We need to be able to overlook a lot of stuff in one another. Keep on loving one another earnestly, he says. And then number three, he says we also ought to keep an open door. Keep an open door. Look at verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. You know, the word hospitality literally means the love of strangers. The love of strangers. It means welcoming the stranger. But here Peter is talking about hospitality toward one another, hospitality within the church, and that was a special need in Peter's time. Showing hospitality to one another. There would be persecuted believers who because of persecution might need a place to stay. They, they might need a room for the night. They might need a room for the month. They might need to be taken in because of persecution. There were traveling missionaries who probably didn't have a credit card. And, and you know, there were not places for them to stay. And the places that there were for travelers to stay were not places that Christians wanted to stay. They were awful. So hospitality was welcoming these people into your home. The letters of Third John talks about that. And then also remember that in these days in which Peter's writing, where do the churches meet? They meet in people's homes. Meeting people's homes. So you had people who every week were opening their homes to other believers so they could come together and worship God. And so Peter says, do that without grumbling because hospitality is not an easy task. It's not an easy task. You know, today, the need for hospitality may be of a different nature. But we still need to open up our homes to one another. For fellowship, for Bible studies, for prayer with people who are, are struggling. You know, back in the 50s and 60s, when the church was growing, probably more than it's grown since, the church was really growing back then. One of the reasons it was doing so is because there were a lot of home Bible studies. I don't know why, but they used to call those cottage meetings. Any of you remember that term? Oh, boy, I wish I hadn't asked that. All right. 
They used to call those cottage meetings. I don't know where that term came from. I've never lived in a cottage, have you? I don't know what a cottage is exactly, but they call them cottage meetings, and people would get together, and they would study the Bible, and, and when the Jewel Miller film strips came along, and if you don't know what that is, ask me later, uh, those were used to teach people how to become Christians, and they, they'd get those cottage meetings, and they'd show those film strips, and people were just baptized, lots and lots of people, and they were meeting in each other's homes. Well, we got too sophisticated for that. I'm not just talking about the film strips. We got too sophisticated for that kind of hospitality, and as a result, the church has not grown that way since. If you've been looking for a ministry to be involved in, and I know people are at times looking, what can I do to further the gospel? What can I do to help build up the church? Think about a ministry of hospitality. Think about opening your home. Keep an open door. And then finally, Peter says, Living in light of the end, we should have busy hands. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to, want to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I want you to look at that verse carefully because Peter says not if you have received a gift. He says, as each of you has received a gift. The question is not whether or not you have a gift. The question is whether or not you are using your gift. Now, we haven't talked about giftedness in the church as much as we should have. But giftedness can take a lot of forms. But in order to be good stewards, good stewards of the grace that God has shown to us, we have to be using our gifts. So we need to be doing some thinking about that. We need to be seeking to identify our gift. We need to, to be deciding what uh, abilities and what opportunities we have that we can use in God's service and do it. We need to be sure that we have those busy hands. And one of the reasons we haven't talked about gifts more is that we've been afraid people would think, would think we're talking about the gift of tongues and the gift of healing and those kinds of gifts that we believe were real in the first century but aren't now. But there are all kinds of gifts. Notice that Peter mentions two right here. He talks about speaking and, and serving. Speaking and serving. There's anything miraculous about either one of those necessarily. Romans 12, verses 6 to 8, mentions gifts of service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, showing mercy. Nothing miraculous about any of those. Those are gifts that people have, gifts that God has given to the church. And they're to be used for God's service and for the service of God's people. So I hope you'll get comfortable with that idea. You have a gift, and you need to be using that gift in the service of God and of God's people because you cannot be a good steward of God's grace if you don't. And knowing that the end of all things is at hand, we ought to all be diligent to be using our gifts in the way that Peter talks about. And notice the goal of this. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. I want you to pay close attention to this. Peter's not saying use your gift so that people will know you have the gift. Or use the gift so that you'll feel fulfilled as a Christian. As true as that might be. Or use your gift so that others will think more highly of you. 
He's not talking about any of that. He says, use your gift so that God will be glorified through Christ Jesus. You know, you may have a gift that other people don't ever know about, but you're using it, and it's to the glory of God. You may have one of those kind of backdoor gifts, you know, one of those gifts that people don't necessarily see. And yet that gift, as you utilize it, glorifies God. It glorifies God. When I first started preaching back in St. Louis, there was an elderly sister. She was way up in her 80s named Effie Rom. And I used to go by and see her every now and then because she couldn't get out and come to worship anymore. And one day I went to see Effie Rom, and, and we were sitting there talking. And, and she said, I, I want you to know I pray for you every day. Now, I needed it. <laughs> I still need it, but I needed it a whole lot back then. Didn't have a clue what I was doing. And, and I told her how much I appreciated it. And she said, I can't do anything else, but I can pray. And I thought, what a wonderful gift. You know, at this stage in her life where physically there's so many things she cannot do, she has found a gift that she can exercise, and she does it. And she was giving that gift to me, but she was using that gift to glorify God. What a wonderful thing. You may have a gift like that. So that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Every Christian, every church can be an instrument for bringing glory to God and should be. All we have to do is use whatever gifts God has given us. And the more we utilize the gifts that God has given us, the more God is glorified because we are acknowledging him as the one who has both saved, both saved us and given us those gifts. So Peter says the end of all things is at hand. So do what? Keep a cool head, keep a warm heart, keep an open door, keep busy hands. They're all important, and they're important all the time, but especially when we're living in a toxic world that doesn't like our faith and tries to keep us silent and tries to push us to the side and marginalize us or perhaps even punish us for what we believe. We need to be doing all the things that Peter says, but also the more hostile that environment, the more the light will shine. The more the light will shine when we follow what Peter says. The end of all things is at hand. It could come any time. It really could. It could come any time. And so we need to be doing just what Jesus said to be pre uh, prepared for his return. We need to be doing what Peter says to stay ready for his return so that we can glorify him. Keep that cool head. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for your prayers. Keep that warm heart. Above all, love one another earnestly. Keep that open door. Show hospitality without grumbling. And keep those busy hands, whatever gifts God has given you for the service of God and his people. Use it. Use it to his glory. If you're not yet following Jesus, come and tell us. Or tell us later, but tell us. And take that step and begin to follow Christ. Let's stand together and sing. I